And, uh, and as Ben mentioned, I preach and lead over at Grace Snellville. I've been on staff there for 15 years, been in the lead pastor role for about five, and I'm coming off a big weekend. My wife's sister got married last night, so we had a big wedding and the reception and everything else. And my wife and I, Amy and I, we have two little girls, Bethany, who's three and a half, and then Maggie, who's one and a half, and they love their Auntie M. I mean, they love her so much, and so it was a huge moment for them to get to watch Emily get married to Derek, and we're all so happy about it. And then at the reception, my girls felt like just the queens. I mean, they weren't wearing wedding dresses, but they might as well have been. They just ran everywhere, loved on everybody, had the biggest time. And so Maggie, you know, shoes come off no matter what. She's one and a half. And, and she had this white dress on, and I just watched her. And I'm the dad making sure she doesn't, you know, run out into the road or something. So I'm just kind of letting her be free, letting her run around and explore, but kind of keeping a nice, safe distance. And, and then at one point, they're at this old cotton mill in Monroe, and, and she's running along in front of this brick wall. And I've got, I, I just had to take my phone out to get a picture because the sheer joy and freedom of that moment it was like piercing my heart. And so I think I may actually have that picture. There's Maggie right there. And she, I mean, that was, that was her for an hour and a half, just grinning ear to ear, running, loving life. And then Bethany, our older daughter, she loves to dance. And she thinks she's a ballerina. And it came to that inevitable point in the reception when the entire group circles up and it's time for people to jump into the middle and like show off their best dance moves. You know that moment? That moment strikes fear into my heart. <laughs> I try to be invisible. And so, you know, a couple of the groomsmen who knew Derek in college get out there. They do something that looks like a doubles figure skating routine. They're like carrying each other around. It's hilarious. And then a couple other people get out and they have good moves. And then there's a lull and my daughter Bethany just steps out into the circle. And you guys can start showing this video of her. And if you notice, she is just going for it. There's Emily. There's Derek. She's so happy about her dress. Look at everybody's watching her. She's loving it. Singing the Love Shack. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but the Love Shack is, is according to the lyrics, near Atlanta. It's in the first verse. And she's spinning. And I was watching this, you know, trying to be invisible outside of the circle. But I was watching this, and I had this thought. I don't know that I have ever in my life that I can remember felt as free as Bethany did right there. I know for a fact I've never felt that free on a dance floor. <laughs> but in any avenue of my life, I can't remember a single occasion when I have felt so free as that. Just dancing. And then I had this follow-up thought as a dad, knowing the world that lies beyond the safe confines of that reception, knowing the years ahead of Bethany and Maggie, knowing the way that the wickedness of our world will try to rob that joy and freedom from them. And I felt the weight of it, and I began to think, God, what can I do as a father 
What, what can I do as a dad who delights in these daughters to help them sustain this freedom, live in this joy, and, and, and maybe even increase it and add maturity and deep wisdom and love into their lives as they grow? And that is the essential question of any disciple maker, whether you're a dad or you're leading a D group or you're trucking out to New York with a bunch of students to spend a week with them. I mean, that's the question. How do we help the ways of Jesus, the life of God, infuse the people in our care with joy and freedom? I think it's really important, and the reason I wanted to show that clip is because we're wrapping up this series on making disciples, discipling rooted renegades, and after the summer of hearing about making disciples and remembering Jesus' great command to go and make disciples of all nations and hearing about the ways that Jesus does this, it's easy to get lost in the details and forget that the reason Jesus gives us this command to make disciples is because he's inviting us into the fullness of life. That a thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus says, I offer life to the full. We're not just employing some techniques or engaging with the drudgery of a dutiful discipleship program. We are transmitting the real substance of life according to Jesus, the only path to freedom and joy. Yeah, the world promises all sorts of different paths to freedom and to joy. Jesus delivers, and if you've walked with him, you might know that. I hope you do. And so the question to think about is, is what is that wisdom? What is that pattern? What is the way of Jesus that leads to life? And how do we convey that into our children, to the next generation, to those God has brought around us, to those that God is calling us to disciple? And so, as you may know, we've been walking through Jesus' interactions with different disciples and people along the way in the Gospels. And so this morning, I want us to look at Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And the reason that I got onto this thread through the Gospels is because when we were planning out the series, people were picking, oh, I'd like to preach on Peter, I'd like to preach on John, oh, I want to cover the woman at the well, oh, I'd really love to talk about Mary and Martha. And so I was listening to all this, and I noticed, like, you're in a fantasy draft for the NFL or something, and, like, somebody's up on the board that hasn't gotten selected yet, and you're like, come around to me, come around to me. All right, I got James. Perfect. Starting wide receiver one. And I was very excited about James because I knew that he was one of the big three. Peter, James, and John, Jesus' inner circle. And I thought, this is going to be a league-winning selection. And then I started looking for James' appearances in the Gospels. And even though he is a member of the inner circle, there are a surprisingly few scenes involving James. In fact, there's only one data point 
referring to James alone. We'll get to that in a minute. And there are a couple of other times when we learn a little bit about James, but he's not the main character. He's not the one speaking. But as I began to dig into the life of James, I encountered something super simple but super deep. And as I began looking at the episodes when Jesus called aside Peter, James, and John and said, I want you to look at this. There's something that just emerges. It's so powerful. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and open it to Mark chapter 5. And, uh, or maybe you can look up on your phone. We've got a few texts to read together. And while you turn there, let me give you the quick summary of James' life. Remember, he is brother to John, a son of Zebedee. He's one of those guys who drops his nets and follows Jesus. When Jesus calls James and John into the circle of 12 disciples, he gives James and John specifically that nickname, the Sons of Thunder, which reflects on their intense and maybe a little bit gruff relationship to the world. I, I think of, if you're a 1988 Oakland Athletics fan, maybe you remember the Bash brothers, Jose Canseco and Mark McGuire. They hit number three and four in the batting order, and when one would hit a home run, the other would meet them at home plate, and they'd just smash forearms. That's what I think of, kind of with that nickname, Sons of Thunder, the Bash brothers. And most of the times when these two show up in a story, it's not necessarily a positive thing. It doesn't reflect particularly well on them. In Mark chapter 10, James and John come to Jesus and they say, hey, could you do for us whatever we ask? And Jesus says, okay, well, within reason, what do you, what do you have in mind? And they said, when you come into your glory, Jesus, we would like to sit at your right and your left hand. Let us have the seats of honor. We deserve the privilege. We deserve the titles. And Jesus, he says, can you drink the cup that I will drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism that I will experience? And they're both like nodding. Bash brothers, yeah. Of course, they don't know that Jesus is referring to the cup of suffering and the baptism of crucifixion. And Jesus says, but you will. You, you, will, you will experience that. On another occasion, these two are traveling with Jesus toward Jerusalem in Luke chapter 9, toward that date with destiny, the crucifixion on the eve of Passover. And as they're passing through the region of Samaria, they ask some villagers there if they might stay the night with their group. And the villagers say no, they reject them, probably because of the racial tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so when James and John come back to Jesus, they have an idea. They say, hey, Jesus, they rejected us, but I think we've got a, a good way to respond. Could we call down fire from heaven and destroy them? And Jesus says, no. It's amazing. Several years into their discipleship process, James and John, the Bash brothers, still think it's a good idea to call down fire from heaven to consume their enemies. And yet, here's the one data point that we have about James alone. It's over in Acts chapter 12, verse 1. It says, about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. So somewhere, 
between give us the seats of honor and we're going to call down fire on our enemies and Acts chapter 12, you have this incredible transformation taking place. The rough and tumble fisherman to the church leader who, when Herod wants to deal a devastating blow to the early church movement, he says, I got to get James. And he beheads him. So he goes from being a son of thunder to the first of the 12 to be martyred for his faith. He goes from an aspiring murder to an actual martyr. From one who would call down violence from heaven to the one who would go to heaven by surrendering to violence. This is a massive transformation. How does it happen? What happens with Jesus that causes such change? And obviously, he spends a lot of time with Jesus. But there are these three instances, these three episodes, these three times we have in the Gospels when Jesus calls apart specifically Peter, James, and John because he wants them to see something. What's in the core of those lessons? For those closest to Jesus, to the inner circle, what is the absolute essential truth, the, the substance that he wants to make sure they understand in order that they might live freely and full of joy in the world? Or just to personalize it a little bit, some of you are parents. Think about it, if, if your children grew up remembering just a handful of things from your life, what would you want them to be? Or if you're leading a group, or you got some people in college tracking with you and you really feel like God has put it on your heart to invest in them and disciple them, what would be the handful of things, the crucial things that you would want them to know? My hope would be, as we look at Jesus, the way Jesus taught those closest to him in his inner circle would shape the way we invest in our own kids, in our own inner circles, and those who are closest to us. So first episode with the three shows up in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. It says, when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And while they're going, amidst the crowd, there is a woman who has dealt with an issue of bleeding for 12 years. She's suffered much by the hands of many doctors. And she, because of her issue, feels excluded, not good enough, apart from community, desperate. 
for a breakthrough. And she's heard that Jesus is the healer. And so she thinks, maybe if I could just touch his robe, something would happen. And she extends a hand of faith, grabs the edge of his garment. And sure enough, power emanates from the master into her body, and she's healed. And Jesus stops. He says, who, who touched me? And the disciples say, are you kidding me, everybody? I mean, we're like in a first century mosh pit everywhere we go. Jesus said, no, somebody touched me with the grip of faith. And he turns around and he sees the woman. And he says, your faith has made you well. But remember, this whole healing, this miracle is an interruption of the desperate situation that Jairus is facing with his daughter on the verge of death. And so, while they're headed toward Jairus' house, this woman's faith and her healing and the miracle, it's an interruption to the plan. And during the interruption, the worst happens. Verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, don't fear, only believe. Which in the original language literally means just keep doing what you've been doing. You came to me in trust. Continue in trust. So verse 37 says, and Jesus allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, Peter, James, and John, and went in where the little child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her a fig newton. Because, of course, if she eats, then it's clear she's not a ghost, but has, in fact, been raised back to life. Now, for Peter, James, and John, what do they learn out of this? And there are lots of things going on. You've got Jesus exercising power over life and death. But they would see that in other places. This was not his only resurrection. But what strikes me is the circumstances of this visitation. Because Jesus makes an initial commitment. Yes, Jairus, I'll come to your house. And then he gets interrupted by a good thing, a very good thing, healing this woman. But during the interruption, the daughter dies. And let me just tell you, if I were in Jesus' shoes in that situation, and I found out that the daughter had died, it would have been so difficult for me to show up at that house. 
well, you know, I mean, I, I had to, there's this woman, and I was helping her out, but yeah, yeah, but my daughter died. Well, you know, the traffic was really bad. We got hung up, and the connector was awful, and no, but my daughter died during the delay. Like, that's the moment for me where it's so hard to show up when you've disappointed someone or when there's every reason in the world to avoid coming to that house and it only gets worse because as they approach, there's commotion, weeping, wailing. People are laughing at Jesus. This is the last place you want to show up. I can tell you, just from personal experience as a pastor, there have been a handful of occasions in the last few years when we've gotten calls about folks in our congregation who've been sick, some very seriously sick. So I've made a note, I need to go over to the hospital and visit. And then stuff will come up. You know, we've got little girls at home, and not, not even healing people with issues of blood. I'm just like caught up in the day-to-day details. And before I get a chance to get to the hospital, whether it's a couple days or what, that person will die. That's what's happened. Or a couple times people have died in the hospital before I've gotten a chance to see them. And I have to tell you, the most difficult thing, one of the things that requires the most courage for me is, 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 is showing up to that family. Who knows? I didn't come to the hospital. And it's not like I even have resurrection power like Jesus, but sometimes people just want their pastor to show up, especially when a loved one is at death's door. And so for me, just showing up in that situation is so challenging. What's Jesus teaching his disciples here? Show up, guys. Show up. Even when you have lots of reasons to bail, even when you have lots of opportunity and lots of just fear and anxiety, you feel like you let people down and everything, show up anyway. Another example, this spring I had the opportunity to be a chaplain for the Brookwood High School baseball team. And so my job, as a chaplain, was to show up at practice. And that first practice, I walked out there, and Titus, the head coach, he introduced me, and, you know, that was all very helpful. But it was like immediately I had reverted to all my 15-year-old anxieties on the baseball field. Like, are these kids going to think I'm cool? Do I have what it takes to play catch with them? And I remember when I was in high school, I used to think, because I played baseball all the way up through college, but when I was in high school, I, I used to think that if, if I only had a little bit more facial hair, then I would feel cooler with the guys on the baseball team. But here I am showing up with a full beard, and I feel very awkward. And now everybody's looking at me like, who's this awkward guy with a beard? (laughs) But showing up and pressing through is the first crucial lesson. How are you at showing up? This is particularly difficult. If you're part of this generation that has grown up with screens. The research time and again shows that the preference among the younger generation is to interact digitally rather than in person. 39% of millennials, and I can say this because I am, I guess, technically a millennial, admit to interacting more with their phones than with actual people. And the great irony 
of our day-to-day lives now is that we are more connected than ever, but study after study after study shows we're also lonelier than ever. Jesus shows up. Jesus, one of the big lessons to his inner circle is show up. Show up, guys. Show up. Even when you feel like it's awkward, anxious, show up. And the word for this, theologically, is incarnation. It goes back to the story in John chapter 1 that talks about the word of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us. Jesus did not just show up at Jairus' house. Jesus, the very word of God, shows up in the midst of human life and human existence. The word become flesh. Unfortunately, so often, our pattern these days is the opposite. Flesh become word or text or snap or Insta. So how are you at being present? And showing up is not merely an action of physical presence. It's an action of attentiveness as well. Jesus is attentive to that little girl. I mean, sometimes I'll be sitting in the living room with my family, and Amy will look at me, and she'll say, John, you're here, but you're not really here, are you? I'm like, what? Jesus is teaching Peter, John, and especially James to show up. On to lesson two. It's in Mark chapter nine. If you're still with me in your Bibles, you can flip forward a couple of chapters. This is the second episode where Jesus trios out his inner circle. Mark nine, verse two, says, after six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, there they are, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Now, there's a lot going on here. Jesus is in dialogue with Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, Jesus' true nature, his inner glory begins to radiate out from him, dignifying the daily, the marvel of Jesus' person emerging from the mundane appearance with which he usually walks. But the key here, the key here is what the voice from heaven says. This is my beloved son, listen to him. Why? Why would the disciples at this point, the inner circle, why would they need the reminder to listen to Jesus? And the key is right up there in verse 2. It says, after six days. Six days after what? Six days after the landmark conversation in Mark chapter 8, 
when Jesus comes to all of his disciples, he says, who do people say that I am? And they give out different options. And then he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then Jesus goes on and gives the first prediction of his own suffering. And he says that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And Peter, when he hears this, says, no. No, that's not how it's going to go down, Lord. (laughs) And Jesus has to say, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about the things of God, but the things of men. And Jesus goes on to say, if anyone would come after me, you must take up your cross and die. It's six days after that conversation. Six days after the disciples have been clued in to the possibility that they might be following a Messiah headed to his death. Six days pondering, what are we doing here? Six days to convince themselves that no, actually the Lord they follow really is going to conquer, really is going to flex his military muscle, really is going to overthrow Rome. Six days really to forget that the way of Jesus leads through the cross. And so Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up to the mountain reveals his glory, which was so striking that Peter didn't know what to say. And then the voice from heaven says, listen to him. The affirmation from God the Father that this is indeed the way of the Messiah, that he will suffer as a servant. And so for them, for Peter, John, especially James, This moment of the transfiguration is actually a moment of affirmation about crucifixion, about the importance of laying down your life, that the way to joy and to freedom and to godliness is through sacrifice and surrender. And this is as difficult for us to hear now as it was then, maybe more so. If anything, perhaps these days our culture and our human bent is even more opposed to the suggestion of crucifixion or laying down your life willingly for the sake of others. I mean, just think about what we hear these days. Hey, you do you. Indulge, treat yourself. YOLO, right? And Jesus is calling all of his followers in a totally different direction. He is saying, no, actually, the way to life is through sacrifice, through crucifixion, through surrender. And remember, self-care matters. It's not like we're supposed to be these drudging people constantly in the Via Dolorosa expressing our pain and sacrifice and burden all the time. But Jesus does say, take up your cross. Take it up daily. 
And the word cross, it's not just a synonym for death. Remember, the cross was the instrument by which the Roman Empire enforced its decrees. So when Jesus says, take up your cross, he's saying, don't sell out to the way of Rome. Don't sell out to the way of the empire. Don't sell out to sensuality. Don't sell out to materialism. Don't sell out to nationalism. Take up your cross. Jesus is teaching them here in this second episode with the transfiguration that maturity is moving more toward the good of others than the good of ourselves. And now the third episode, it's Mark 14, where we see Peter, James, and John singled out, or really trioed out. Mark 14, verse 32. It says, they went to a place called Gethsemane. It's the night before Jesus will be crucified. It's the night when he will be betrayed. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, there they are, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. If there's any other way, now is the time, Father. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. And then he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Twice more, Jesus prays in this way. If there's any other way, but not my will, yours be done. Jesus wants his closest friends. He wants his nearest disciples. Jesus wants his inner circle to be with him. Not only for support, but also that they might see him in this moment of decision. Here he is in the, the crucible, the pressure of the coming crucifixion upon his shoulders. He knows what's coming. And here in Gethsemane, this is the place where he settles it once and for all, that he will in fact lay down his life and trust God for resurrection. That's what this third one is about. This third episode is about trust. Because laying down your life really only makes sense if you trust in a God of resurrection. Without this third point of trust in a God who brings about resurrection, the first two points of showing up and laying down your life will end up being like that book, The Giving Tree. You guys, some of you may have read it, The Giving Tree. Somebody gave it to us so I could read it to our girls, and I'm not sure if they're ready for it. There's this tree who loves the little boy. The little boy keeps coming. He has needs, and the giving tree just keeps giving and giving and giving and giving and giving until at the end, all that's left is a stump to sit on. 
And if there's no power of resurrection, then just showing up and laying down your life over and over and over again results in us becoming just stumps to sit on. That doesn't sound very free and joyful. But here Jesus reminds us that the showing up and the laying down of our lives is not merely a call to sacrifice. It's also a call to victory through death. So if showing up requires courage and laying down our lives requires humility, here we see Jesus trusting God for the outcome and it requires surrender. Not my will, but yours be done. And this is where so much of our own discipleship goes off the rails because we're willing to show up, we're even willing to lay down our lives, but we hold fast to the outcome. As long as I can get what I want, I will show up and I will carry my cross. Counseling 101. The only person you can change is yourself. You can't change other people. The reason that's counseling 101 is because we lead our lives so often trying to change other people. If I just do this, then they will be like that. If I just can convince them, if I can just, maybe I'll serve a little bit, but it's like utilitarian serving where we're trusting ourselves and our own service and our own sacrifice to get the outcome that we want. Jesus demonstrates here a totally different way. Not my will, Yours be done. I will show up. I will lay down my life. I will trust you for resurrection. And isn't that, at the end of the day, what we really want? Don't we want the stuff that God can do only by his power? Don't we want, like, the resurrection way of God in our lives rather than the manipulated, manhandled, grasping way of our own schemes and strategies for outcomes? like in my marriage, right? When Amy and I have a conflict, which is never because, you know, we're such great followers of Jesus. But let's just say, hypothetically, Amy and I have a conflict. We just came through a season of planning and executing a family wedding, so there were a few real, not hypothetical conflicts. In my marriage, when we have a conflict, Following in the way of Jesus, listening to the lessons of the inner circle means, first of all, showing up with my wife. So in our marriage, it's really easy, if we have a conflict, to just sort of ignore it and not show up, and then a couple weeks later kind of hope that it's just gone down the river. Of course, it really hasn't, but that's the tendency. So challenge one is just to show up. Hey, sweetheart, I know that that last conversation didn't go very well. Let's talk about it. But going into that conversation, step two after showing up is laying down my life, right? It's not trying to convince her, persuade her, or get her to see my point of view. It's to show up and, and to lay down my life. And then the third piece, and this is the hardest one, is to trust God to resurrect something in her, a transformation or a change. And hopefully she's doing the same with me, showing up, surrendering, and trusting God to bring about something only God can do. That's it. That's the very simple pattern of discipleship. That's the, the pattern that Jesus teaches his inner circle. That's the life that Jesus lives, incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection. And it's not just in marriage. It's, it's with our money, our approach to our resources, showing up, 
living open-handedly, trusting God to provide. It's with our health, our physical bodies, being present to our physical bodies, living a life of surrender and trusting God to bring it about. Sometimes we get so focused on the outcome of our appearance that we just stop trusting God altogether and start trusting a diet or a workout scheme or some other way of life, and it can be very unhealthy. In our parenting, to my daughters, Bethany, dancing in the the next 15 years with her and beyond are gonna be me as a dad showing up, being present in her life, laying down, sacrificing and surrendering on her behalf, and then trusting God to do what only God can do. I mean, I have a thousand plans of things I'd love to see Bethany become, but if I start to be that kind of dad who's gonna steer her and shape her and, and force her into my expectations, that's not gonna be healthy discipleship. Show up, lay down your life, Trust God for resurrection in every area. This is it. In mission, in the neighborhood, in the community. You know, you guys here at Grace Marietta have done, started doing some good news clubs in the local elementary schools. I remember the very first time we in the Grace family got a call about a good news club. We didn't even know what it was. There was just a middle school teacher who had been coming to Grace, and she'd heard about a good news club, and she taught at an elementary school, Kanaheda Elementary School, that is actually one of the premier schools where kids are getting jumped into gangs in fifth grade. It's crazy. She said, we need more gospel witness in our elementary school, and there's these good news clubs. Would you come and do that? Well, that's our decision now. Are we going to show up? It's a day a week after school. A little Bible club will teach kids, and they can opt in if they want to. But it's going to be more than just showing up because Once we get into these families' lives, it will require surrender, sacrifice, generosity from us. It's more than just two hours on a Monday afternoon. It's going to be loving on these people, praying for these folks, walking with them. And what's going to happen out of this? Well, we're not sure, really. It could be a total flop, or it could be an amazing story of breakthrough, but we have to trust God with the outcome. It's not like starting a good news club is a way to engineer our church growth We don't know if they're going to come back to grace. It would be very easy for us to line up all these outcomes that we would want to manipulate. But instead, our challenge as disciples who follow Jesus in the way of Jesus is to show up, lay down our lives, and trust God for the outcome. And in the years since then, it's now grown, I think, into 15 different elementary schools. You guys are about to start your second Good News Club this year. And what's come out of it actually is not a huge amount of, like, self-serving church growth. What's come out of it is amazing stories of communities getting connected, of churches partnering together. We've been able to hand off numerous good news clubs to churches in neighborhoods that are closer to the schools and to those communities. It's been like a real expression of the kingdom of God, something we could not have planned on our own if we were just lining up a strategy sheet. Over and over and over again, I could tell you stories. Wherever you find resurrection life, the kingdom of God breaking into the present, you will have found people who are showing up, laying down their lives, and trusting God for the outcome. So that's our challenge this morning. We can invite the band up here, and we're going to have just a little bit of time to respond. Obviously, I could just keep preaching for a long time because this is a great chunk of Scripture. I think we'll, we'll, we'll close right here. So two kind of questions. 
first on your own behalf. Maybe open your heart to hear the Holy Spirit. And, and just ask God where you're seated right now, prayerfully. Ask God, are there any places, are there any people where you are calling me to show up even though it may feel like you've blown it, even though you may feel late, even though you feel like something's happened that would cause you not to want to go, is there any place where God is calling you to show up? Are there any situations where God is inviting you to, to surrender, to sacrifice? Maybe it's volunteering for that second service starting on September 8th. You're going, man, my Sundays are kind of nice, and now we're going to two services. It's going to be a little more of a time commitment. But not just to show up, maybe to, to, to lay down your life. And then thirdly, just ask God, are there any places where I am showing up and I am serving, but I am still grasping the outcome? And I need to release that and say, not my will, yours be done. Real simple. God, are there any places you want me to show up? Any places you want me to lay down my life? Any places where I can trust you more? That's on a personal level, but then as a disciple maker, let me just ask that question again. For those closest to you, the inner circle, your kids, your spouse, your roommates, what are they seeing in you? Are they seeing that pattern of showing up, laying down your life, and trusting God? And if not, how can you more and more follow in the way of Jesus, learning to live the kind of life that he lives? Because here's the thing, showing up, laying down our lives, trusting God for resurrection, that is the way of joy, that is the way of freedom according to Jesus. If we live our lives trying to avoid, if we live our lives trying to preserve ourselves, we lose it. We try to control outcomes, we deal with constant disappointment. Jesus says, you want to know how to be free, you want to know the life of God's kingdom for which you were created, learn to show up, lay down your life. Trust God, because what God can do is so much better than what we can engineer. Down here at the front, we've got communion set. There's communion also in the back. It's a great reminder that this is, in fact, the pattern of Jesus' life. That his body was broken, that his blood was shed, that he died, but on the third day was resurrected. He now seats at the right hand of the Father, and he will return. So let's pray, Lord. Thank you for the scripture. Thank you for inviting us into that inner circle that we might see those things that are so crucial for you passing on to those who are closest. And Lord, would you now, by your spirit, just work among us, lead each of us, give us the direction, the encouragement, the wind in our sails that we need. Lord, would you give us courage to show up? Would you, would, you, would you help us choose humility in our surrender? And Lord, would you, for some of us who've lost faith, would, would you come back and, and would you just remind us that you are the God of resurrection, that you are the God of life, that you are the God who can bring dead things forth from the dark tomb. Lord, would you cause our faith to arise? You are, you are our hope, Lord. Our, our hope is in you. 
pray this all in Jesus' name.